I'll go ahead and pray and, and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you've given us another Sunday that we can come and celebrate the resurrection of your son and uh, just the new life he's given us, the new covenant that we live under, Lord, uh, that as we realize our own frailty and our own flaws, that we have a Savior who uh, was perfect and went and died for our sins, gave himself up that we might restore a relationship with you that was uh, time and time again broken by our own uh, character, by our own uh, essence of who we are, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would keep that in mind, not only this morning, but as we go through our week. Amen. So we're in Genesis 10. We kind of started it last week. And uh, Genesis 10 is interesting because Genesis 11 comes right after it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird. That's why they numbered it that way. But uh, just for your, uh, just to kind of prepare you, we're going to try and get through Genesis 11, 9. Uh, and then uh, there'll be a break in Genesis for the Sunday school classes. And then uh, we'll jump back in, which is the nice thing is, is that starting in Genesis eleven ten going forward, from there we get into the story of Abraham or Abram as he'll be called initially. And so it's kind of actually, it worked out rather fortuitously. So looking back at uh, Genesis 10, just a reminder of where we're at, uh, the God built the garden, or built uh, the earth, uh, created the earth out of nothing, and, and then formed everything that was on the earth. In Genesis 2, he, he puts man in the garden and, and gives him this wonderful place to live and allows him to have this relationship with him that is, is perfect and full and enjoyable and uh, above and beyond anything uh, we can even imagine now to the point where God goes and spends time with man in the garden and uh, man it decides that he may know a better way and decides that maybe God's holding out on him a little bit and ends up trying to be more like God and refusing to obey God and refusing the life that would be best for man, he ends up sinning against God. And we see the fall in Genesis 3. But there's a promise there in Genesis 3 that a son is going to come from woman and uh, eventually right the wrongs. And we continually build to that. As we see in Genesis 4, the expectation would be that it would be Cain that doesn't work out when Cain slays his brother, and then we move to uh, Seth. Seth is then born, and again, hope is, is arisen in the land because the thought is, well, maybe this Seth will be the one who the seed comes through. And in uh, chapter 5, we see the differences between the sons of Cain in, in chapter 4 and the descendants of Seth. In chapter 5, but still it all ends up leading to corruption in chapter 6 to the point where God is ready to, to basically hit a giant reset button and destroy everything on the earth and ends up wiping it out in a flood in chapter 7. And after the uh, flood subsides, we're left with Noah and his sons and, and their wives. And they come out and God reestablishes the earth. The earth again is is populated with animals, is populated with uh, every living thing you see on the earth, all the green plants, 
are again populated and God tells them, now go be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth and multiply in it. And man turns around and in case uh, you've missed this theme, man then takes what God has given him and we see the the leader of all men, the, the A, number one guy, once again fails and we see the sin of Noah along with the sin of Ham, and, and we dealt with a curse last time that fell upon a specific son of Ham, Canaan, and uh, Canaan's descendants then are cursed by God. Lest we think this is unfair, we need to understand that the Bible teaches very clearly that all sin in Adam, all of us are guilty. Before we're worried too much about what happens to Canaan and his descendants, you ought to think about the fact that <clears throat> God just got done destroying every living thing on the earth that isn't in the ark. And it was just and it was right what he did there. That's going to be important because the the thing I haven't brought up yet this morning is the whole context of Genesis is Moses teaching the people of Israel who their God is and why they must do what they're about to go do as they enter into the promised land. Which is even more poignantly for today, kill the Canaanites. Get rid of them all. God is a just God. God understands right from wrong, and he isn't going to punish the righteous, and he isn't going to uh, allow the guilty to go free. So there's righteousness in in this act that God is going to do through his people Israel, a people who they themselves are not even guiltless as they've wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. But that's, that's God's prerogative. God is over all, and, and man deserves judgment for the rebellion that he continues to show. And so now we've seen the rebellion that, that, that comes through individuals. We've seen the, the rebellion that comes through a, through a line in a family in Cain. And now we're going to see the rebellion of all people in society as well. So as we look at at chapter 10, uh, starting there in uh, verse 1 and and forward, there's a lot of names there that I I read last time that I think I get a pass on that I don't have to uh, read this time, but I do want to hit some of the highlights. If you look down at uh, uh, verse 2 through 5, you have the sons of Japheth, and down and then finally in verse 5... the, uh, you notice that they were coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to their language, according to their families, and into their nations. And again, if you jump forward to chapter 11, you're going to find out why there are different nations and different languages. So 10 is kind of an explanation of here's the descendants of, of Noah, and then 11 is how is it that all these people got spread? So we see uh, the sons of Japheth. So if what's the first slide you got for me, Ethan? Behind the curtain. All right. So uh, just to give you guys an idea of what we're talking about here. Egypt down here. Israel would be here. You can see Canaan there. And up here you've got Greece and Iran and Iraq 
Garden of Eden was probably somewhere in here. And up here is, is in the area of Turkey, where Mount Ararat would be and where the ark would have settled. And uh, it's kind of color-coded for you. I, I don't know how well that translates. So you see the red up above, sons of Japheth. And you see the blue, uh, the descendants of Shem. And then the green are the descendants of Ham. And we're specifically looking at the Canaanites. Canaanites would have uh, lived, it, it also mentions the Philistines here. Canaanites, Philistines, they're going to live on the coast going inland into what would be Israel and Lebanon. And the rest are spread out. Interestingly enough, uh, the descendants of Japheth, is there a world map, Ethan? Does it go broader? I guess this, one, this one's more broad. So a, a little bit better depiction here. Sons of Ham spread out here. Shem and Japheth. Interestingly enough, one of the oldest languages in the world is Sanskrit. And Sanskrit is actually tied to all the descendants of Japheth where they spread. So from India to the Far East, all the way back to, well, Ireland, really. Those languages all have a common ancestor uh, linguistically. Okay, if you have a language family slide. We're doing some, some interesting history. So, on, on the second map, right? The one on my right? Yeah, so the, all of this over here, all the green is Sanskrit, which I find just fascinating. So, so, this spread out over all the world, and you can see how these family groups actually kind of, kind of spread. Um, and also kind of where the, the different genes have spread from as the world is populated. What's most interesting about the Sanskrit thing is, is we are dealing with a time period right after the flood where we actually have a historical document that tells us in some detail, really, what it was like then. Um, and it's always just amazed me as somebody who's, I've had some education in my life and how little respect this text gets compared to some of the other texts that we just have bits and pieces of. And it's always exciting when something like uh, back in the 20th, 19th century, when they'd studied the language and found that, huh, it's odd, the language dispersion of Sanskrit almost lines up exactly with what the Bible says, the descendants of Japheth, how they spread out. And so it's just one more way that reality actually reinforces what we're seeing in the Bible, which is, is always exciting to see. Um, not shouldn't be surprising to us, but with the world we live in and the pressures that are put on us and everything else we hear, that, that's kind of reassuring um, to see that that's the case. We jump down, starting in verse 6, we start covering some of the descendants of Ham. And then in, in verse Eight specifically, Cush becomes the father of Nimrod. Nimrod is uh, a mighty one on the earth. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod is an interesting character. We don't know a lot about him. Um, some of the traditional stories of Nimrod give him a very interesting uh, 
personality, probably a warrior, probably a, a mighty hunter before the Lord is probably indicating he's a mighty warrior. And more specifically then, it says, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We shouldn't just be thinking, well, Moses was just re-emphasizing the same thing. But I think what we're seeing here is Nimrod had made a name for himself to the point where he had a reputation around the whole earth, that this is who this man is. Nimrod is probably the one who's leading when uh, uh, the Tower of Babel gets built. He's... uh, Certainly that idea would fit him in this description of him that he elevates himself above all others. Then as we look in uh, continuing down, we see the actual Canaanite line. Canaan becoming the father of Sidon and Heth and the Jebusite, Amorite, Girgashite, Hivite, Archite, Sinite, Arvidite, Zamorite, Amethite. And they're spread abroad. And then it goes into exactly where the territory is. Then we see the Semitic people in verse 21. So this would be the the sons of Shem, which would be the sons of uh, not only the, the Israelites, but also the other Arab nations are all descended there. And, and again, where you see the blue there would be where we find the sons of Shem. Eber is mentioned, father of all children. Eber. Eber is where we think that we get the word Hebrew from. And so that's where that's first mentioned. You remember that the, the Egyptians understood that that's who they were. And then uh, down in verse 25, we have this noted, two sons were born of Eber. The name of the one is Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Well, when is the earth divided? I think that's a, a, a marking stone that helps us understand uh, chapter 10 and 11 and how they work together. We see that, well, it was during this time of Eber, uh, specifically uh, the son Peleg, was when the earth was divided. When was it that everything was spread out and when did uh, we get all these divisions of people? It would have been during this generation. Specifically about 100 years after the flood is when this has happened. So then we get to Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and, and we see what, what divides the people. What's your next slide there, Ethan? There we go. Hey, look at that anticipating. So the generations to Babel. Um, so we're looking at it right around 100 years after the flood and then what comes after. All the way down to Peleg. This is an image from above of a ziggurat, a large ziggurat that would have been built where they believe the Tower of Babel was built, that this might actually be the foundation of that. It was never completed. The, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Ethan, we have the trenches dug dug around it actually by the archaeologists as they're trying to do the dig, and that's why it's a little more marked out. And what's your stone there? 
So yeah, so could you guys hear him? So the ziggurat was never completed. Then in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he started building it again. The stone is referring to that time period of when Nebuchadnezzar was going to build it, not only build it, but build it better. Um, It's going to build it back better. (laughs) Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's not going to work well. Um, But it does exist. The the foundations of the temple are of this Structure is still there, and ziggurats exist all over um, the world. And we associate ziggurats with what? Has anyone ever got to go see and climb on a pyramid? Where were the pyramids we went in Mexico? In Cancun. What's that? Matsalon? Yeah. So, so you go up there, and what are the temples associated with? Ten- I just gave it away. What are these ziggurats associated with? They're places of worship. And they're places of uh, political power. Um, very often human sacrifice goes on there. So, and it's, it's where the people consolidate. It's the center of, of society as well. And I don't think it's a big stretch to, as we see what's going on with this one, to see that that's, that's what's happening here as well. It is also interesting that the idea here, the benefit of having a temple reaching way up high is not only we'll get to, to the whole 11 through 9, 1 through 9 here, but also understand what they just came through, which was the deluge, the flood, and certainly the idea of, hey, let's get up high off the ground is not lost one of the other things that, that is associated with these ziggurats is tyranny. Usually there's either a priest or a political leader who is a priest who lives tyrannically over the people that are underneath them. And that's kind of the, the social side of, of what's going on. And again, it fits well with what we actually find in Scripture, the description. So let's, let's read through this, this story so 11.1, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east. You want to go back, Ethan, to that slide? There we go. Uh, this one. Yep, there. So if you look at that right-hand slide and think of where Turkey is, as they journeyed east, um, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So interestingly, so they're here. And they're settling in the land of Shinar, which is actually probably as best as we can guess around where the Garden of Eden is. Just after they've been told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth again. So they settled there and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad 
from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From, and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So Moses is now explaining how it is that the people of the land that they're going into got where they are, as well as who you are as Hebrews. And why it is there's a, there's a country in Egypt, and basically why are there countries? Why are there kingdoms? Why are there rulers? He's establishing that line of continuity for the Hebrews from Adam to Noah, and now from Noah to their current day situation. That God is progressing from generation to generation, and he is planning, and what he laid down is going to take place. And not only that, but the way he deals with people is the same, and his expectations of people haven't changed. He's reminding them of this, this whole point of this story as a seed is coming. There is a Savior that is going to come and set things right. But he also wants them to understand the depravity in the, of man and the need of man to be saved from outside himself, that left on his own devices, this is what happens. It's a reminder that creation is not as it should be. We even saw in the spiritual realm back in chapters 3 and chapter 4 that the spirit world was not as it should be. And Moses is reminding the people of that, the importance of understanding that. So we're seeing this progression and now we've come to this Tower of Babel where everyone has the same vocabulary, the same language. They've moved to a nice comfy area, probably, as I said, near Eden. This is a fertile area. This is a place where it would have been very easy to settle as a group of people and not a large group of people to start with, but uh, the, the procreation ability of man is exemplified here where already it's becoming a large city after 100 years starting with eight people, seeing this huge outcropping of, or outgrowth of the, the population. It's pretty impressive. But it's also what God's plan was. When God blesses something, it isn't just... Again, hey, I hope it goes well. It's, this is good and I'm going to make it happen. It's a little different than when we bless things. We're like, hey, I hope that works well. God blesses things and it's again, I think this is good and I'm going to cause it to take place. So he is going to cause them to spread out throughout the whole world. So again, they're, they're most likely led by, by Nimrod, this, this warrior, this rebel, this one who is against God, who has these attitudes that they don't have to do what God says. And when you get to, to verse 3 there, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. It's interesting. Verse 4 starts with the same statement they make, come, let us. Where have we heard that before? Come, let us adore him. Very good, Jay. Where have we heard this in Genesis? Yeah, creation, right? Who says that? Yeah, Elohim, God himself. The Lord of all says, come let us. As, as the, the Bible continues to expound on 
who God is as we move through, we're going to find there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're in communion with one another. And that communion in the plans of what's going to happen on earth is shown to have been something that they planned together. They are going to work to do this. And now we see man himself. I don't think this should be lost on us. We see man himself saying, come let us build. Come let us make bricks. Come let us make ourselves a city and a tower and a name for ourselves. In contrast to what God intended, which was for us to be spread abroad over the whole face of the earth, we're going to prevent that from happening. We see that man here is in is starting to conspire against the Almighty. We're a hundred years away from when God destroyed everything living on the earth. We're less time. Well, let's see. Are we? We're, when did we start flying planes? Right, brothers. That, oh, yeah. So that would be like us in that amount of time. If everything was taken away, everything was gone, turning and rebelling God in that, against God in that short a time. It's just, it's just amazing. And yet at the same time, we, we hopefully by now understand that that really shouldn't be that amazing to us. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world where they communed regularly with God and they rebelled. Um, Cain killed his brother. And then we saw Noah's sin, Ham's sin, immediately following the deluge. And now we see all of mankind gathered together in rebellion against God. And again, we see this tower that's built in defiance of God. Everyone is under one societal rule. There's some religious significance to this as well. And uh, the idea of maybe being elevated out of reach of what God can do to us because we've got this mighty tower that now if God tries to destroy our world again, we've got our tower. We can go up and live in our tower or escape to the top of the tower. Turn over to Daniel 4. So Ethan brought up, and rightly so, brought up King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, is an amazing character. It, it, it's, a, it's a worthwhile study to go back and look at him because we sometimes see leaders in our own society who uh, seem to have it all, seem to give seem to show that they have everything this life has to offer. They have power and riches and authority, and everyone loves them. And, uh, and we see how God interacts with them. It's interesting because I'm not sure if Nebuchadnezzar ever truly came to have faith in the God that made him. But we certainly see him learning lessons from God, and it's, it's encouraging that God works with even people like him. But if we jump to, uh, to verse 29 there, I'll just start reading. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof, King Nebuchadnezzar was, of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built 
as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hairs had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing But he does according to his will in the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And we'll stop there. So we see here a very similar situation in the life of an individual taking place at the same location. In the time period when Israel has been carried off into captivity And the one who's carried them off, the one who's now their ruler, excuse me, the one who's now their ruler has has boasted that he himself has built a great city and he will be like the Most High. He will have all the might and power and glory and majesty that actually belongs to God. God takes it all away from immediately and diminishes him to nothing but a beast in the field. Having done that, then we see the Lord telling Nebuchadnezzar, when you turn back to me, your reason will return. And and sure enough, that's what occurs. What's amazing is then this this prayer or this song, this poem that, that Nebuchadnezzar pens in describing God. And I think you can take that and look and see what happens here as God reacts to the Tower of Babel and say, this is the attitude that God is looking for in these people and it's not present when he comes down and sees the tower being built. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the earths are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? It is interesting that the, the mention of kingdom there, that God, God establishes his kingdom. And I couldn't help but thinking, as we're going through 1 Samuel, we have uh, the idea of a kingdom there. What do you need to have a kingdom? Okay, ultimately you need a king. You need people, land, and a king. And the Israelites had which of those things? What was the one they thought they were missing? A king. Were they missing a king? No, not missing a king. So this was probably an important lesson as they were going into the land, right? You understand you're going into the land of Canaan. You're going to have a land. You are my people. I am your king. You don't need these other things. You don't need this king because I am the one who who will be your king. Don't make the mistakes that 
are, are made back at the Tower of Babel and try to set yourselves up as being your own ruler. I am your ruler. Rely on me. They were obviously a special circumstance being the people of God. But for those of us who believe now, we, our citizenship is not ultimately here on earth. It's God is our king. And that's why we obey our country as long as it doesn't tell us to, to break any of God's rules and follow him because he's ultimately the one we're, we're responsible to. But what we're seeing here is that the importance is being set down by Moses that this idea of building yourself a name, building yourself a city, setting up a kingdom where I am not the one who's in control is a, is a dire mistake. Don't make this mistake. Or you'll face the same thing that these people faced. And ultimately, as the, as the Israelites sought their own kingdom and they sought their own earthly successes, God did come down and scatter them as well. I don't think that should be lost on us. So we see in verse 5, God is reacting to the tower then. The first four verses are man's reaction, the, the last or the, the man's side of the story. The, last, the next four are God's side of the story. And then verse 9 is a summary for us. And in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose will be impossible for them. It's an interesting statement. What in the world is that? I mean, we can do anything. So what was it? Slowing his th- things down in the sense that someday all of mankind's going to unite once again against God and go against him? Yeah? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think all of mankind will rebel against God um, when they all come together. And I think that's, that's one of the lessons we, are to, we ourselves are to learn from this, is that when you take all of mankind and you put them together and you give them one mind, that one mind is not going to lead to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, and let's all just live in peace together. It's when you start pursuing a one world order or a, or a government that takes care of all needs and all wants and all desires, you end up with, with the exact opposite of those things. You end up with millions of people dying, basically. So I think, yes, I think there was a sense in which God is restraining and giving an incredible grace here that we'll get to in just a minute. But yeah, I, I think there's, there's an acceleration here of the evil of man and what man is capable of doing as far as destruction and as far as destroying society. And God is saying, whoa. And he does, I, I would agree with you, that he kind of pumps the brakes here and scatters them. And we'll, we'll touch on that some more in just a second. Um. So they'll do whatever they want to do. Well, what do people want to do? What's the heart of man like? Deceitful, behind the curtain it said, deceitful and desperately wicked. He's behind. He is, yes. 
I mean, we, we've, we've touched on Romans 3 before, but Romans 3 is, is what's in all of our hearts, right? The, none of us seek after God, none desires to do good. And so the heart of man desiring to do whatever he wants to do and pursuing it, there is no restraint on him as an entire human race now can come together as one and pursue what humans pursue without God in their midst. And so God is, God is putting a stop to this possibility. Verse 7, come, let us go down. Again, there's that phrase. Only this one's going to be potent. The last one lacked any potency. The statement made by man lacks potency. The statement by God is actually going to be carried out. Come, let us go down in their confuser language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So as they're building everything, as the commanders of the groups of people and the builders and the, the worshipers and the government officials now can no longer communicate with anybody, the chaos that ensues, they can't buy and sell anything with anybody anymore. They divide up into these people groups. And interestingly enough, they divide up into people groups based on their families. <clears throat> God does not separate the families from one another. He separates families from other families, but not within the family lines, as we, again, our language studies have shown us, so that these people stay together and they spread out much the way that they would have done if they just obeyed God in the first place. They would have gone out in their family groups over the whole earth and spread out, subdued the world and, and been worldwide gardeners, as was intended at the very, very beginning. So the Lord scatters them over face of the whole earth, they stopped building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Kind of a summary statement of, okay, how did we get here? So behind the curtain, God's plan is going to work out no matter what we do about it. Yes, Exactly. Yes, please. So again, God is spirit. He's omnipresent. So it isn't a physical... He's separated from us physically, and now he's going to be with us physically. Um, so it can't mean that, but it does mean that, yes, he comes into and starts dealing with directly mankind is how I would read it. So like, did he appear on the streets of Babel and wave his hand and everyone started... It would be far better for, for like a made-for-TV movie, if that's what happened. But um, yeah, we aren't given that indication. Um, but there's certainly some form of condescending down towards to man. Absolutely. No, that, that's a good point. 
So what happens when man has, name some people that, that wanted one world government, one world order. Okay, Hitler. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy. Um, how'd that work out? Not so good for the Jews. What about the countries around him? Yeah, very bad. So what's the role of, we saw the role of government and of man policing men when you kill another man, two weeks ago, I believe. Um, And that is after the flood, if you kill somebody, what's the punishment? Death. Yeah. And who's going to carry out that, that killing? Man is. Man is responsible to carry that out. So we see that that's instituted, and now we see these nations instituted. What are the, what's the grace of having individual nations? Because there is, again, turns out the Bible's relevant for today. There is a benefit to having individual nations. This wasn't that, this would have been not even thinkable 200 years ago. That, that everyone would just say, well, of course it's good that there's nations. What's the benefit of nations? Because this is a grace of God that's given to these people. They're not being punished by being put into, it's not like I'm punishing you by putting you into nations. We established that. He's, he's punishing them and having them go into the form of peoples that he intended at the beginning. He's carrying out what he wanted to be done after the flood. So what's the benefit of there being more than one nation in the world? Okay, counterbalances if one gets nasty. The, the good of one country often doesn't align with what another country wants to do, and they have to work those things out so the one country can't just run roughshod over all of the countries around it. What happens with individual countries? What happened with Hitler? Yeah, there's people within his own country that were killed, but also outside. What would happen if... Um, What's another one of uh, somebody who wanted to be, what's that? Alexander the Great. He, he probably the closest one to, to succeed. What's that? Attila the Hun. All these great people. Stalin. Um, Hirohito in Japan. Mao Zedong. These are all people who, who have the idea that one world order is something that would be great for all of us. But God gives governments so that they can keep each other in check by serving their own best interests and doing what would be best for their people. And it controls the ones around it. Turn to Amos for me and we'll... Take one other look at this. And go to Amos, Amos 1. In verse 2. So Amos again is, is a prophet from the southern kingdom, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and he's going up to the northern kingdom. And he's prophesying against the, the kingdom of Israel But it is very interesting because at the beginning of this, his prophecies are against specific nations. 
So we just covered some of the benefits of, of, of having multiple, or one of the benefits of multiple nations is that it keeps man in check. Man just can't, you can't have a single person deciding to rule the world the way he wants to rule the world. You want to screw something, you want to screw this whole world up, put me in charge of it. I guarantee you I'll screw it up and it'll be bad in the end. Even, even if I was on my knees praying 12 hours a day, I can guarantee you I couldn't do it well. But there's also a problem with, with individual nations. And again, there's still, they're still individual people. So when we look at verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus. So he's talking about Syria here, um, their capital. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, so the people of Aram will go exiled to Kerr, says the Lord. And then it goes on and starts talking about other nations that God judges. But this, this first one will serve as an example to us of... The problem with Syria was they would take people and either it doesn't say if they're alive or dead, they would take their captive people, lay them out on a field and run the thresher over the top of them. It's not a problem that they went to war here. The problem is the way they treated the people that they captured. And God says, you're, you're bad people and I'm going to judge you. It's going to come about. I, I deal with people not only as individuals, but as groups. And the group that you are associated with, I will deal with you. So another lesson that the people of, of Moses are learning here is that the, the people group, the nation group you belong to can be judged by God for the way you as a people act and behave. And we're seeing this, this people that have all come around Babel that have rebelled against God now are being treated as a people group and everyone in the in the group is being punished for the sins of the entire nation. That God deals specifically with nations, not just individuals. So yet another lesson that we're learning that the people of Israel are going to need to, to know as they're going into their land. So overall then, I think that's all your slides, right? Perfect. Didn't want to leave one out. So overall, we're seeing then that, that this idea of a people of God, is, a descendant of God is coming, but now we're getting the idea that there's going to be a country, there's going to be a kingdom that belongs to God as well, that's done right, not done the way that Babylon has done it. That a king is coming, a seed is coming, and that people divided into nation groups the assumption is going to be there is a specific people of God. The people receiving this word and understand that they are the people of Israel. They're the Hebrews that have come out of Egypt as a people group that God is now going to work with as well. And so that's now what we're seeing established. Questions about the text today? Thank goodness. Um, I'll pray and we can be dismissed then. Lord, I just thank you for time in your word. I thank you that you are teaching us by the, the lessons that you're teaching the people of Israel as well. We thank you that this has been recorded for us and that 
It has stood the test of time, Lord, that archaeology itself and even study of languages supports that your word is true and that it can be relied upon. Pray, Lord, that you would be with each one of us in our hearts as we come together to worship in a few minutes, that we would uh, be of contrite heart and spirit, that we would confess our sins to you, Lord, and understand that it is but by your grace that we're allowed to uh, lift up praises to you, Lord, and pray that you will enjoy that time as we gather with other saints today to worship. Amen.